You're listening to Beyond the Jargon, a jargon-free look at graduate students and their research journeys here at the University of Victoria. From CFUV 101.9 FM, I'm your host, Maureen Chow. Here today with Jillian Chow Fraser for Beyond the Jargon. Hi, Jillian. How are you? I'm great. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Tell me who you are and what you do here at UVic. Uh, so I'm Jillian Chow Fraser. I'm a master's student in the School of Environmental Studies at UVic. Um, I'm just finishing up my second year here, and I do all my research on the large carnivore community in the Rocky Mountains of Alberta. And you're from Ontario. What made you want to come to BC to do your master's here? Yeah, I mean, it seems like there is just a really large portion of people who move from Ontario to BC to (laughs) see what it's all about. Mostly it's just, you know, there's definitely a different relationship that I feel BC has with nature and with wildlife than I found in Ontario and it really came down to the schools that were doing the research that I was interested in pursuing and a lot of it was happening in either Alberta or BC doing research on you know wildlife and something that involved a lot of field work and in Ontario it tends to be a lot of freshwater research just because we have the Great Lakes which is totally fair and it's super awesome research but yeah I just settled on UVic it was the best program for me and the the right lab doing the research I wanted to get involved in. Right and what is it exactly that you specialize in? So I specialize in asking they call it macroecology, so really big questions about what is driving really pervasive or large-scale ecological trends or patterns. So I look at how animals, specifically large carnivores, respond to different kinds of disturbances that mostly come from humans and like the energy industry, things like oil and gas and logging, how they respond to those kinds of disturbances and what other kinds of effects they might have on that community. And where have you gone up for? I saw something about you specialize in camera traps. Yeah. Where are they currently planted? So we have several camera trap arrays. They are currently mostly throughout Alberta. We have them kind of throughout the boreal forest is where we tend to focus because that's also where there tends to be a lot of uh, where the energy industry really focuses a lot of their efforts. So my camera arrays that I mostly work with, they're in uh, Kananaskis country, which is kind of in between Banff and Jasper in the Rockies along the east slopes there. And then also Right at the front ranges, so right at the top of the Rockies, they call it the foothill in like the Wilmore Wilderness area or the Wilmore Wilderness Park. It's actually the most protected area in Alberta. That one park, it's protected under its own act and it has no oil and gas development there at all, no logging, um, just a few linear features from before when it was not 
protected as fully and so we use it as our kind of a reference site so we see how animals behave in the Wilmore using these camera traps um, and then we can compare it to all of these other sites that we have where there's lots of disturbance lots of other features and so we can kind of compare how things are different for the carnivores. Right. So what are some of the most shocking discoveries that you've found in comparison? I imagine you must get hundreds of thousands of, of photographs. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. There. I mean, so for people who don't know what camera traps are, and I'm sure it's not common, they're, they're motion-triggered cameras. So they're similar to like people who are hunters might be more familiar with it you can put them out on game trails and basically anything that has a heat signature and that moves in front of the camera it'll take a picture of it or several photos of it or you can get it to take a video Um, but basically we put those cameras out you know say a hundred cameras out in a certain area you can leave them out for the whole season or for a year or for multiple years and so every time an animal goes in front of the camera it takes a picture of it so you do end up with these databases of you know hundreds of thousands of photos and one person has to go through and analyze (laughs) each photo and say what animal it is and so you get really good at identifying things you get really good at seeing photos that look like you know potentially sasquatch material or something like that but Basically, you can use all of these camera photos and run some really fancy stats to kind of see what patterns are out there. But mostly why we use these kinds of cameras and this method is because, I mean, people are really familiar with like the tar sands or the oil sands in Alberta, right? You know, you see those huge aerial photos yeah Yeah, like it looks terrible and they have tailing ponds and it's disgusting and you're like oh obviously this is terrible for the environment but what I think people don't aren't aren't as familiar with is all of the other kinds of impacts that the energy industry has on the landscape so outside of you know this tar sands region you have actually a lot more impacts of it's just oil and gas exploration. So it's when they're just looking to see if there's oil underground. So basically what they do is they make these things called seismic lines, or sometimes we just call them linear features. So basically they're they're just stretches of clear cut that they extend for kilometers and kilometers, but they're only about five meters wide. And so there's actually not a lot of habitat loss. Like they're actually not removing a lot of the old growth trees or anything like that, which is how they kind of get away with, you know, this quota of how much they can clear cut. But they stretch for kilometers and kilometers and they actually have, you know, all these different kinds of effects on animals that we don't, we haven't fully understood, but the most well-researched or the most well-understood so far is that wolves, so an apex predator, they use them to move faster through the forest and if you've ever been hiking in the Rockies or like you've ever hiked through thick aspen you know it's so terrible (laughs) moving through this like incredibly difficult terrain and so if I had you know this really nice clear-cut road I'd move down it too and so you have this apex predator using it and they actually they move they move faster they move farther and so basically the chances of them running into prey so like deer or moose or caribou 
actually increases a lot. And so you see those higher predation rates on prey. So you like that's one example of what we might call an indirect effect of these disturbance features. But there are so many others. And so you might find like where I'm really interested is if we find that a wolf is using this area, how do we, how are the other carnivores then responding to that? Because with predators, it's really interesting. You have to both compete for food, but you also have to compete because another predator will fight another predator just to gain advantage, right? And so if, you know, a coyote and a wolf meet each other, a wolf will probably kill a coyote just to eliminate that competition. So you have this added layer of, you know, complexity to being in a space where you know wolves are, there's an added risk to that. And so how does the rest of the community structure in response to that? Right. And that says a lot about kind of the intersectionality of all of it as well. Mm -hmm. And have you seen a lot of that just through your research? So kind of like these like cascading and these rippling effects. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. So, I mean, when you think about if... Why, why we're so interested in how the carnivore community is responding to these features is because we have this really important threatened species of prey that live in boreal forests. So woodland caribou, which are extremely threatened. They've been, you know, they've been listed on the Species at Risk Act since 2000 they you know we've known that they're in trouble for a really long time and a lot of research has come out that the reason their populations are doing so poorly is because gray wolves use these features and so they predate on caribou at much higher rates and so it's basically at a caribou can't respond quick enough you know they're very specialized they have to be in these old growth forests they eat you know very specific food that only grows in old trees and so they can't adapt their their um, habitat selection anyway in the same way that uh, maybe other prey species can like deer or moose that are maybe you know can really use a lot more other resources that are popping up so it's just a really complicated <laughs> system with a lot of direct and indirect effects that we don't fully understand, um, but that we're trying to with these with these cameras. How do Central Mountain caribou fit into this? Is this part of mm-hmm. the same project, or I noticed that you have a yeah. specialization in it? Yeah. So basically, woodland caribou are you can think of them divided into kind of subspecies, these different categories. So there are... How do they fit into it? Right. So uh, woodland caribou are the species that are um, threatened, but they can be subdivided into different categories you can think of. So there's uh, the boreal woodland caribou so they obviously live in the boreal forest but then there's also mountain caribou and so those are the more like migratory caribou they exist on the mountains those really high altitudes Uh, so those mountain caribou are what reside in the foothills region that I was talking about so the one that's right at the top of the Rockies there and they move across BC to Alberta 
between the winter and the summer. And we call them the central mountain caribou because there are two other types. There's a southern mountain caribou and northern mountain caribou. So it's, I mean, very confusing because there's lots of different units of these caribou that we're trying to protect. But in particular, I focus on central mountain caribou. Uh, Basically, I have... uh, There are two herds there that we have collared. So we have telemetry data for them. So everywhere that they are, you know, every four hours, it'll send a location, a GPS location of where they are. And so we have that data from over, spanning over 15 years. And so basically I can use that data to see where these caribou are choosing to be or what routes they're choosing to use to move between BC and Alberta. Uh, And I combine it with what I'm beginning to understand of how carnivores will select their habitat based on, you know, how many seismic lines there are in the area, how many cut blocks there are in the area. And so to see if, see how caribou are, you know, if they're managing to balance that I do have this suspicion that, you know, it's just, it's so many things happening at the same time for them that they can't, um, it's impossible to really make an optimal choice for them. I don't think there is ideal habitat for caribou Mm -hmm. just because, you know, there are so many, like the carnivore community is so large (laughs) in the Rockies. It's really unique. It's really fascinating. And the way that they've survived for this long is specializing on this food resource that they eat that typically carnivores can't really reach them very easily. But now it's making it a lot easier for certain species to move through these really dense landscapes. And so it's hitting caribou a lot harder than it usually would, Um, you know, in addition to a lot of other factors that are happening at the same time. But I can only really take apart one piece of the puzzle, you know. Of course. How does this compare historically? Uh, So caribou, um, I mean, their declines have been noted for a while now, even on the Alberta Wildlife Act, I think in the 90s they were listed. But um, really, like, recently has been, we've seen a huge escalation in their predation rates and in really low survival of their calves. Like their population numbers are just, uh, I think of all the boreal woodland caribou herds in Alberta, all of them are in population decline or just not in any growth at all. And so it really is kind of this crisis moment for caribou in Alberta and BC Um, and so, you know, I feel like (laughs) we're, we're at a point too in our policy where we're really pushing it as far as we can go. You know, they've been listed on the, the highest protection possible for, by the federal government. And we're still not really seeing movement by so basically what happens is they get listed by the federal government and the feds say you know we have to do something about this this is the goal that we've established for them they want 65 percent of their habitat needs to be uh undisturbed by you know they don't even really put a deadline on it so that's one thing. <laughs> but uh so then they pass it to the provinces and then it's up to the province to 
enact action for each of those herds. And so basically what you're seeing is this kind of like tennis match where the provinces will say, well, we can't do this because you've made the goals too unattainable and they pass it back to the federal government. Mm -hmm. And the federal government has like, no, you know, you have to, we're going to put this, here's this consequence if you don't, and they pass it back. And right now I think they're, they're talking about a state of emergency for caribou in Alberta, just because no significant action has been taken by the province. Um, But then you also see, you know, things from the federal government, like purchasing, purchasing a pipeline that is going to go right through all of this habitat and have these really negative effects on these prey species. And which our research talks about is, is more than just habitat loss is more than just fragmentation because you're affecting the entire carnivore community too. And you're affecting, you're affecting so many other things that all cumulatively add up to the, extirpation or the extinction Mm -hmm. of this species in Canada so it's yeah can we go a little bit deeper in terms of long-term effects and in terms of just beyond habitat loss right for you know for caribou and for carnivores and for like the whole yes mammalian species (laughs) yeah so what's interesting about these disturbances is that they do grow back over time, right? So I think that's a lot of what, um, you know, these reasons for you put these cut blocks in, but, you know, you wait 50 years and in theory, you know, that cut block will be grown back and it'll be, you know, this early forest and that is good for species in the boreal. It's, you know, similar to if you had fires come through and it grow back and that was good. But the problem is the, the density and the frequency at which these disturbances are are happening is so so much higher at such a greater rate than it would be naturally. You know, it's this density at that which it's happening is not uh, anything that any boreal forest <laughs> is any community could be responding to. It's a completely novel landscape that these species have to respond to and I think we don't really know the long term I think is what is so um you know what makes it kind of such a crisis is is we don't really know how these what the community is going to look like in 20 or 30 40 years if we continue at the rate at which we are of um, development of these landscapes and So when you first make a cut block or when you first clear cut a small area, basically you have um, these like really low lying shrubs or grasses that grow back. And those are really good for other prey. So for like white-tailed deer and moose, they love, like that's great. That's grazing, that's perfect. And so you actually see this really positive response from deer and from moose that do like they love cut blocks and they love this early, early growth forage is perfect for them. And so, you know, you do see kind of like there is just going to be this shift in the community where you're going to have things that and this is something that we see in in any wildlife situation that has to interact with human disturbance or with people or cities. It's the animals that can respond positively to those disturbances those are the species that typically thrive and survive in that. Um, so, 
you know, will in 50 years when these cut blocks grow back are, you know, it's tough because caribou, they really need like, they need old growth forests. And those are what are being logged away. And so old growth, you know, like 80 to 100 years for an old growth forest to grow back and then have the lichen that they need is like, that's not the time frame that we can work with for them. It's not realistic. No, absolutely. Right. <laughs> it's not. And so I think you're so for instance, so in BC, I mean, there was news a month ago about the Selkirk Mountain caribou. They're functionally extinct. So they're right at the border between the states and BC and there's only three caribou left. They're all females, which means that they can't have calves because they can't mate with any males. And so they're extinct. And, you know, so we're seeing that we're seeing the losses of caribou in Alberta and BC. And it's because of this level of development on the landscape. And, um, I mean, I don't think we have to think about, oh, I wonder, you know, it's, it's one of those things where it's, it, it doesn't do any good to think about the long-term consequences potentially because we're already seeing those consequences. And so it's really, we just need to, uh, you know, keep having, keep growing our understanding of how, of these, of these indirect effects of the direct and indirect effects to really understand how much we're changing when we develop the landscape in this way. Um, but then at the same time, seeing it happen, you know, seeing the, the losses already is, should be, you know, evidence, but. And there's a, throughout this back and forth between provincial government and federal government, where does academia fit in? I can tell that this oh. comes from a place of, <laughs> a place of passion on mm. your end, of course. So. Yeah. Yeah, that's a really great question. And something that I've been grappling with uh, for a while now too of you know so where does um, at what points can I influence how this decision making is is done and I mean I think there has been a lot of um, encouraged intersection between policy and you know the evidence-based decision making um, which of course is important and I think there are definitely opportunities you know they have a lot of like they want public response on how they want to um, like for instance the BC government right now is wants to hear feedback about they want to make their own um, species at risk for the province and so and you know that's great but then it is a balance between you know again this that it's a crisis and so we need something happening um, quickly, but, uh, with the best science, the best, um, up to date, what we know most evidence-based decision-making for sure. Um, it's definitely tricky because I don't want to be one of the, you know, ecologists that tells management or policy how to do their job because it's very complicated. And, you know, there's a lot of other, uh, a lot about the political climate that maybe I don't understand. And so I think it'd be really interesting to to move forward and kind of try to find how, like, where where that more fits in. I think the social dynamics a little bit more of what we need from the community and as a society to kind of push towards uh, 
uh, prioritizing the action needed to save these threatened species would be really interesting. And I would love to learn more about that, but I don't know right now. (laughs) (laughs) Walk me a little bit through your last few presentations and how those have affected what you do and how that, I guess, puts it more... All of this is taking initiative. Mm -hmm. But when you're presenting to people on these topics, what are some of the things Mm -hmm. that you'll do? Yeah, um... So I've given a lot of presentations at conferences lately. Um, Those have always been, those are always great experience. Um, In particular, I gave a presentation at, it was the Alberta chapter of the Wildlife Society. So that was in Alberta this past March. And that's always a really interesting conference because it, they invite not just academics, but they invite um, policymakers, so as we were talking about, and then they also invite like consulting companies, and so it is people who are definitely a lot more, you know, in the field are are really have definitely a different perspective and a different understanding of how this is all happening. And um, I think it's just you have to tell the narrative in such a way that it's people can connect with it. I think when you take the story from, you know, this is something that I love, that we love, that we as a community love and cherish. And so you have to protect the things that you love. And, you know, this is this is what we're doing right now. These are the effects that we're having right now on this, on the wildlife and these nature. Um, and, you know, this is, we have to do something about it. And so I think that is, when you kind of tap into that, I think you you can get people to care and just telling the story in, in a way that really connects with people. And you're a photographer as well. <laughs> so I take photos. <laughs> <You> take photos. <laughs> I'm, I've seen the photos. You're yeah. a photographer. Um, so in terms of storytelling, do you ever mm. implement your own photos into presentations? or Because these aren't camera traps. These are DSLRs, I'm guessing. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, actually, definitely both. Uh, I like to use both people. I mean, I'll talk first about my photography, I suppose. Um, I do. I love using my own photos. I love using photos uh, for people from my lab or people that I know, people that I can give you know credit to their work. And uh, I think that does help connect. I mean, when they, when people, I, it does lend itself some credibility when you're like, yes, I am actually out there and I took this photo of this animal that I, <laughs> I really was there, right. you know? <laughs> um, and, and it's beautiful and I love taking nature photography. I think there's so much beauty there that people don't often see when they're moving so quickly past things and on hikes and, you know, even just drives down on a country road you can see a lot of nature and there's like so much to see and I love I love sharing that I love sharing my photos but people love 
the camera trap photos. I mean, I do too. It's it's so because it's like you're spying on them. You're like mm-hmm. you're like pulling back this this <laughs> curtain on you know how animals behave when we're not there, which I think is always is is again something that everyone can relate to is gosh I wonder I wonder what my dog does when I'm not home you know like (laughs) people you have like those cameras that are like you can watch your dog and see what it does it's it's like so it's a very natural thought I think to be like gosh I wonder what these animals do when we're not there and you know maybe what are these lasting effects of it and so and then you show these really cool photos you know of uh so we bait some of the camera traps, which means we just put some like food up in a tree just so we can, if there is an animal in the area, it does go in front of the camera. And so you get these really sometimes amazing photos of like, um, it'll be, you know, a cougar and then like it's little cougar babies, <laughs> you know, a little kitten. Right. And it's, you know, showing it how to climb up a tree or showing it how to eat the bait. And so you capture these moments that, are really, you know, definitely not something that you would see if you were there. I mean, animals are so attuned to humans as, you know, super predators. And so it is really, really cool looking at the photos and and seeing what goes on, spying on them a little, (laughs) (laughs) seeing what they do. And post-grad, are these the types of things that you'd be doing? I think with being an ecologist, does it stay in academia or what does it look like past UVic? Yeah, again, another great question that I've been, (laughs) I don't know, been thinking about a lot recently. There's definitely seems to be um, this (laughs) dichotomy as an an ecologist in in grad school or as a master's student that, you know, you either launch yourself into academia and so you go the PhD route, you do, you know, the postdocs, you get tenure positions, all that, and you, you know, try to get a research lab going and try to uh, have as much of a positive influence as you can there. Or you go into, you know, um, it's a lot of experience to get involved in like being a consulting or technician or working for nonprofit groups, I think is, would be maybe the way that I would go. I'm super fortunate that I get to collaborate with a lot of groups in Alberta because that's where my research is. So, um, for instance, the Foothills Research Institute um, are—they're a nonprofit that I work with. That they do amazing work on caribou and grizzly bear. Um, so they're the ones who are um, sharing the telemetry data with me. And so I think maybe taking a break from the very sprint to the PhD uh, role and just kind of taking a moment to like, yeah, to really just keep doing what I love, which is, you know, just being out there and doing what I can to help these species and these animals that I love so much. So I think there's a lot of opportunity. Honestly, it's just whatever happens, happens. (laughs) I can't afford to plan any farther than a week ahead of my schedule right now. <laughs> so all the more yeah. power to you. Yeah. <laughs> How has being in Victoria affected what you do and your outlook on what mm-hmm. you do? I have loved Victoria. I've loved Vancouver Island. I'm from Hamilton, Ontario originally, so it's very busy and it's very I mean there is definitely a lot if they call I mean 
Hamilton brands itself as the waterfall capital of the world. But I, yeah, I, duh. That face, I know. But, um, <laughs> um, so there is definitely, you know, nature and people definitely do get out there and it's nice. But uh, out here, it's just so different. Just the culture and the relationship is, is, has been great for me to be exposed to. And it's been great to, um, I feel so lucky to be in a place where any weekend I can go to a Gulf Island and go camping and feel really connected to the earth and really connected to wildlife and it definitely helps reinvigorate my purpose and my passion in this when it you know grad school can get very difficult (laughs) very lonely sometimes don't know why you're doing any of it and so I think being here in such a beautiful place that is so connected and so aware, I think has really helped me grow as a person and, and develop as a student too. And one final question, what is your favorite part about UVEC? And is it what we just talked about or are there other aspects of being a student here? My favorite part about UVEC is my department that I'm a part of. So the School of Environmental Studies, so ES, is incredible the community there is so wonderful everyone is so caring i was so nervous about you know moving across the country starting this new program and you know what if what if i don't fit in and like what if these aren't my people and honestly that department is just so phenomenal i could not sing more praises of the community that it builds there and the support that every professor in that department has for um, their grad students, regardless of if they're directly supervising them or not, has been really, I just cherish that about my time here. And I'll definitely, everyone that I've talked to who's like, oh, I have to graduate. And you're like, yay, I'm graduating. And you're like, oh, now I have to leave ES. (laughs) It's been so amazing. And so I've definitely... uh, the university, but mostly environmental studies is is a very beautiful department. <laughs> and everyone's in it for the same reasons. Yeah, and I, yeah, definitely. I think that is also what helps is everyone you know, we're all working towards this from very different perspectives because we have three different streams there. So it's the ecology, the restoration ecology stream, which I'm a part of. And then there's the ethno-ecology stream as well as political ecology. And so it's very different perspectives, potentially. You know, people are getting MSCs and MAs in our grad program, which I think is really unique. But, you know, the idea that everyone is working towards this unified uh, collaborative solution to these problems that we face, I think, really helps build uh, a sense of community in the program. Thank you so much for coming in, Jillian. Thanks so much for having me. It was such me. a pleasure to have you. Yeah, and my pleasure. For interviewee contact information, or to listen to this episode again, go to podcasts at cfuv.ca. Thank you so much for listening to Beyond the Jargon.